Praise the Lord. Again, so good to see everyone in the house of God this morning. Let's all stand. We enter into the presence of the Lord as one body. We seek his face. We desire to receive of him this morning anything and everything that he desires to give to us. Amen. We seek the will of God for our lives, for this service. We want his will to be accomplished. Amen. Let's call out on him this morning, and let's discover what that is, and let's receive of him. Amen. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity you've afforded us this morning. You have given us invitation into the very throne room of God, into the very presence of Almighty God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord God, that we would be discovered of you this morning, that we would be found of you today. Hallelujah, Jesus, that we would enter into your presence. I pray, Lord, that we would receive of you all that you have in store. Every gift from you is good, and it is right, and it is perfect for us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to seek your face. Help us, Lord, to find you, to hear your voice, to feel your touch, to spend time in your presence. Lord Jesus, we seek you this morning. We're not seeking a blessing. We're not seeking uh, signs and wonders. We seek you. Let all the other stuff follow, but Lord, we need you. We desire you, thou most high God. Help us this morning, I pray, to find you, to enter into your presence and to receive of you. We worship you, we praise you, we laud and we magnify you, and we thank you for all that you will give here this morning. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Praise God. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. By way of review, last week we talked about Isaiah. And King Uzziah, we discovered a warning, if you will, that if we allow it, God's blessings and God's promotion can cause us to believe that we've received these things at our own hands. We saw that in the, in the case of King Uzziah, God had blessed him mightily and wondrously because he was humble and because he was submitted to the will and plan of God. He was obedient to the voice of the Lord. And because of that, the Lord promoted him. The Lord blessed him. But toward the end, he, did, he started to think that maybe this was because of me, because of my intellect, because of my own skill and talent at, at rule. But that came to naught. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 states, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Proverbs 10 and 22, he says, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. Amen. So if I do desire promotion from God, and I think, I think that's a good thing, I think it's okay to, to want to be promoted spiritually. Amen. How do we get promoted? Well, if I want a promotion at work, I just sit around and wait to be asked. Is that how it works? No, nobody gets promoted that way. I got to start taking on more responsibility, don't I? I got to start standing out a little bit. Give them a reason to promote me. To be seen. Now, spiritually speaking, we're not working to be seen of men, but we want to be seen of the Lord. 
We need to take on more responsibility, as it were, spiritually speaking. God will promote us. Isaiah saw the Lord God in his heavenly realm. When we think of seeing God, typically we think of Jesus. God manifest in the flesh, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. But that wasn't seeing God in his environment. That wasn't seeing God on his throne. That was certainly seeing the character of God, the works of God. But when Isaiah saw the Lord, when Moses saw the Lord, it was as he really is in his glory, in his splendor, sitting upon his throne, the angels surrounding him crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah saw that the posts of the door of the temple moved and shook at the voice of the angels. That smoke filled and permeated the whole place. And his response, I think his response was perfect. The only response anyone could have in that circumstance. Woe is me, for I am undone. How else, could, how else could a human being respond in the presence of that? In the presence of God's divine holiness and glory. He was instantly and overwhelmingly aware of his own sinfulness. His own shortcomings. His own failings. But rather than hide it or justify himself, he confessed it to God in a manner that to me indicates desperation. When he was confronted with God's holiness... When he was confronted with God's glory, he was so very desperate to be clean. I've got to be clean or I'm, I'm dead. No one can stand in the presence of a holy and a righteous God with sin in their life. You've got to do something with it. Again, I remember my first time in the presence of God. You guys do too. It was a, it was a holy and a terrible thing in my mind. I was confronted with who I really was. Just like Isaiah was. Because of his uncleanness in the presence of God, he was afraid, and rightly so. Sinners ought to be afraid in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Saints ought not be afraid. Reverent fear. But there is not... There ought not be sin in our lives. We've been delivered from sin, from the bondage of sin. It doesn't rule over us anymore. That's what it means to be transformed. Where before I was a child of wrath, that was my nature. I was by nature a sinner. I am now a child of obedience. And I am by nature obedient to God. That is who he made us to be. In his presence, there were no pretenses, no justifications that came to mind. He was entirely exposed before God. God knew everything, and Isaiah knew that God knew everything. There wasn't going to be any making excuses. There wasn't going to be any rationalizing or explaining things away. Yeah, well, that's true, but here's why. Mm -mm. There's none of that in the presence of God. 
you realize that you're the problem. It's your fault. You're the one that sinned. And that sin is on you. That's what every person realizes in the presence of a holy and a righteous God. So he confesses his sin. Woe is me, for I am undone. How did God respond to that? Like he always does. Like he always responds to sincere repentance. He cleansed. He purified. He healed. He restored. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 17, the great psalm of repentance The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Anytime, every time we come into God's presence with humility and with a broken spirit, God responds to that. If we come into his presence proud and haughty, making excuses, God responds to that too, but not the way you're looking for When we deign to seek to see God as He is, we can never go back to the way we used to be. When you see God in His throne room, when you see God high and lifted up and His train fills the temple, when you see God in His splendor and His holiness and His righteousness, that changes you. You can't go back to the way you used to be. You can't see God anymore the way that you used to see Him. And when he gives you a promise from that point forward, it's a whole lot easier to trust in him. It's a whole lot easier to believe that that God can do what he says he's going to do. Amen. Our daily devotions. God's entire creation was designed and built to operate with God in charge of it. The devotion quotes Jared Rundk, Handbook on the Prophets, He says this, it becomes not simply a matter of choosing to serve God or not, but rather a matter of submitting to the basic structural reality of the universe or not. And I would add, not only is the entire universe created so that God would be in charge, and that's how it's supposed to operate, He created you and me the same way. And when we try to operate outside of those boundaries, things fall apart. Because that's not how we were created to operate. We were created to operate in submission to the will and plan of God. That God would tell us what's right and wrong. God would tell us which direction to go and when. God would tell us how to do this, that, and the other. That we would be submitted to God and obedient to Him. That's how we were designed. That's how we were created from the ground up. And when we try to operate any other way, we break. We malfunction. Like trying to plow the back 40 with a Porsche. You can try it, but it's not going to work very well. And eventually you're going to break the machine. It wasn't designed to do that. It wasn't built for that. Neither are we built to discover truth on our own. Neither are we built to just lead our own life, decide what I want to do, who I want to be. That's, that's not true, folks. That is a lie. We are designed to submit ourselves to the will and plan of God. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
When we enter into God's presence, as Isaiah did, we are reassured that he is in complete and absolute control of every aspect of his creation, no matter what is happening in the world around us. Again, when we see God as he really is, sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, it's very easy to understand, okay, God's got this. He's in charge. He's got everything in control. It may not seem like it, this little thing going on around me, but I'm looking at God. He's in charge. He's on the throne. He's in control. This ought not really bother me a whole lot. Day one, God doesn't see us anymore as who we were when we come to him, but he sees us as who we are. Again, we need to understand who we are in God. I'm not the sinner that I was when I came to the Lord the very first time. I remember who that person was, but that's not me anymore, and it's not you anymore either if you've come to God. You are a new creature in Christ. And if we really understood what that meant, that there was a complete and total transformation, that that person died He was buried with him in baptism, and we arose in newness of life, a new creature. God calls us chosen, blessed, beloved, child, forgiven. That's who we are now. Day two, seraphim comes from the Hebrew word seraph, seraph, which means to burn up. It was the seraphim. But in Isaiah and in the book of, I'm sorry, it was the seraphim in the the book of Isaiah and in the book of Revelation that declared God's holiness. Holiness is not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. And here is a great opportunity to talk about this for just a moment, to reiterate the difference, the similarities, but also the difference between holiness and standards. One is who we are. The other is what we do. Okay, again, I can be holy on the outside all day long. I can wrap myself in in burlap sack from head to foot. I can avoid everything that even remotely resembles the world. I can cloister myself away, and I can read Scripture all day long. But if I don't have God in here... If God hasn't transformed my nature, I'm still a child of wrath. I'm still a sinner. And none of that other stuff really matters. But if God writes his law on the table of my heart, if God transforms my very nature from the ground up into someone that can please him, that can serve him, that can obey him, then as I grow in him, naturally what's going to happen is that's going to be reflected on the outside. I don't have to worry about standards then. As I draw closer to God and as I become more like him, and that's the key, folks. I can't just sit around and wait for it to happen. They call it discipleship for a reason. I've got to discipline myself to move forward in him. Sometimes it's really easy to do, and sometimes it's really hard work to discipline myself, to get up and pray, 
to get up and read my Bible, to come to church. Sometimes it's discipline. But I do that for a reason. I love the Lord. I want to serve and to please Him, to do those things that please Him. And I want to grow in Him. As I grow in Him, I'm going to conform to His image. As I grow in Him, I'm going to start reflecting who He is in my life. The fruit of the Spirit are going to become manifest in me. Not of myself, but because of who resides here. I am going to look holy, but only because I am holy. I have the holiness of God applied to my life. That's the only reason. So rather than stress standards, I'm stressing inward holiness, without which no man can see the Lord. Is it important to be holy? I think it's very important. Is it a salvation issue? That's hotly debated. I think it is. That one verse that I just quoted, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. I think holiness is very important, and it needs to be stressed. But holiness is in here. Holiness is someone that we become, not something that we do. Amen. So when we're we're talking about holiness, that's what I'm talking about. Reflecting God's character. Holy is, is who God is. That's who He is naturally. He is holy. And we want to reflect that as well. If God is to perfect His holiness in us, it will require we allow God to refine us. That requires fire that will burn up all the impurities in our lives. Amen. And that's always fun, right? It is always necessary if we are to serve and to please God, if we are to become the person that God created us to be. Day three, foxhole conversions are a thing because in these times, it's in these times that we're forced to confront our own limitations, our own mortality. Foxhole conversions are a thing because when the shells are raging overhead and the bullets are whizzing past us, we feel the burn of that hot lead. We start realizing, there's nothing I can do here. I'm just rolling the dice at this point. It's up to someone higher than me if I live or die. Maybe I should get right with that person. I believe we were designed to respond to overwhelming situations this exact way. In these times, we're designed to want a Savior. We realize that we need someone, we need help. I can't do this. I can't save myself. Now, unfortunately, many people look in all the wrong places for that Savior. There is one and only one that can save us. Not only from our circumstances, but from our very natures. That one, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He's the one that came down from heaven wrapped himself in flesh for the purpose of dying for our sins. Amen. Day four. It fascinates me how many times in Scripture God touches the mouth of someone he desires to commission and use. Jeremiah 1.9. The Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. 
Daniel 10:16 And behold one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me O my lord by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me and I have retained no strength And of course in Isaiah 6 6 and 7 Then flew one of the seraphims unto me having a live coal in his hand which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar He laid it upon my mouth and said lo this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged the devotion explains in Proverbs 18:21 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Words, ladies and gentlemen, words are so very powerful. We've all heard the childhood expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. We all know that that's a bald-faced lie. We all know that. Words are powerful. They can speak life into someone. They can destroy someone. To the extent and ability that God has given to each of us, we must use our words to the glory of God. Some of us have more words to use than others. Some of us have bigger words to use than others. doesn't matter. To the extent and to the ability that God has given to each of us, we ought to use them for the glory of God, for His purposes, to heal, to encourage, to coax the smoking flax, to heal the bruised reed. Use your words wisely. Day five, we will know righteous leaders by their fruits. As a leader, you won't always get everything right, but if your desire is to please God and remain faithful to Him, He'll help you to get it right. Amen. And all of us, folks, every single one of us are leaders in the kingdom of God. We all have influence in people's lives. We all have influence over someone, whether or not they will ultimately decide to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. By and large... Those that we know, they will choose to serve the Lord or not based on our actions, based on our choices, based on what we say, how we respond to situations, our witness. That's a powerful responsibility. That's a weighty responsibility. But it's ours to bear. Amen. Our lesson today, called to be holy. Scripture text is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. The Bible says this, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. 
For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Amen. The Hubble telescope was launched in 1990, but the mission came within a hair's breadth, literally, of total failure. Shortly after its launch, scientists discovered a flaw in Hubble's primary mirror. It was known as a spherical aberration, and it prevented the mirror from focusing light on the same point. Because of the flaw, Hubble operated in only a fraction of its true capacity. For a time, NASA contemplated bringing Hubble back and completely replacing its primary mirror. However, experts working in Baltimore, Maryland, and in Boulder, Colorado came up with a different plan. By 1993, NASA had already developed an upgraded version of Hubble's wide-field-slash-planetary camera with optical adjustments that compensated for the flaw in the mirror. (sighs) Taking that design as their cue, engineers created the, very cool-sounding, Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement, or COSTAR. Got to get the acronym right. Words don't really matter. Basically, the engineers created a pair of glasses for the Hubble telescope. Happily, Hubble's new pair of glasses functioned even better than expected. But here's the astounding part of the story. The flaw that almost caused the Hubble mission to fail was less than one-fiftieth the thickness of a human hair. For all intents and purposes, it was an invisible flaw, but it had devastating visible consequences. Mm. In writing scripture, as in publishing scientific papers, it seems that you either publish or perish. And what I mean by that is we have designations, we have divisions of scripture, such as major prophets and minor prophets. Why are Isaiah and Jeremiah considered major And poor Amos and Habakkuk, they're minor. It's certainly not importance, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now, it's the volume of the words. It's it's the volume of the book. The major prophets have great, big, long chapters and books. The minor prophets have itty-bitty chapters and books. same could be said of the Apostle Paul versus the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Paul writes extensively and often. The majority of the New Testament was written by Paul. Peter, you remember Peter, the one to whom the keys of the kingdom were given, the one who was there at Acts chapter 2, preached the first sermon, Acts chapter 8 opened the door of salvation to the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10 
Open the door of salvation to the Gentiles. That's you and me. That Peter, he just got a couple short books in there. But in either case, brevity does not mean they are of less value to us. The epistles of Peter, although relatively brief, are of immense value to us today. That applies to any of the scriptures, by the way. No matter how brief or how extensive the writings are, they are all of equal importance. It's all necessary. The entire book is necessary. The precise historical circumstances of Peter's correspondence have been a matter of continued debate. Although the letters consistently use persecution rhetoric, it's difficult to link the letters' contents to a known period of systemic persecution, widespread persecution. Now, we certainly know that there was, there was persecution during the time of Peter. Uh, almost immediately, there were, there were uh, instances of persecution. But we're talking about widespread systemic persecution of the church as a whole. Just kind of like today. There is persecution today in the world. There is even persecution today, rising persecution in the United States. But I still wouldn't qualify what we suffer in the United States as the same level of persecution as is experienced in perhaps China or other areas of the world, Muslim countries. I don't think any thinking individual would try to compare those two. But we seem to be getting a lot of warnings in our churches concerning persecution. Maybe the Lord is... Maybe he knows something that we don't. Maybe the Lord sees something coming that we may not see. Just like in the time of Peter. Now to say that the Apostle Peter played a crucial role in the early church is it's a gross understatement. Jesus gave him the keys. In every case the Holy Ghost was poured out on a different group it was Peter that was there. Now, we do know that there was persecution uh, in Peter's time. Peter was taken before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. He was thrown in prison in Acts chapter 5 with the other apostles. He's thrown in prison again in Acts chapter 12. Downright criminal. And uh, if legend is accurate, he died by being crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die the same way Jesus did. Okay, so what does Peter teach us here? 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5 says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, Peter teaches us, one, that salvation is not only a past experience, it's a future hope. We have been saved. 
at one point in the past. We experienced salvation. We entered into a covenant relationship with our Savior, with Jesus Christ. And we were saved. We are being saved. God continues to save us and to deliver us and to restore us. And we have a future hope that we will be saved. That we will live eternally with Jesus Christ. Because of this, Peter exhorts us to gird up our minds. 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to gird something up? We see that expression throughout the Old Testament. It's a call to take action. It's a call to work. The common garment was a long ankle-length sleeveless tunic which hampered fast movements and strenuous work. In circumstances requiring it, the tunic would be gathered up and tucked into a belt worn at the waist. And then they were girded up. They were ready to run if they needed to, to fight. Job 38 and 3, the Lord speaking with Job says, Gird up now thy loins like a man. Why? For I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Job, you're going to need to do something here. Pay attention. Get to work. Listen to the questions and provide an answer. So how do we gird up the loins of our mind? Well, according to this verse, it's to live and to look with anticipation toward the coming of the Lord when he will be revealed to the world. Jesus is coming back. And all the world is going to see it. This action is not automatic for us because we often set our gaze on what we see rather than on what we cannot see. It's one of our constant struggles, particularly in first world countries. We are so focused and so absorbed on the secular, the temporal, because that's where a lot of our responsibilities lie. That is where we live. I don't have a spiritual body. I have a body of flesh. It's got to be fed. It needs rest. It needs exercise. I've got to maintain it. There's this thing called entropy in God's creation. Things wind down. Things break. Things wear out. Things have to be maintained. And that costs money. So now i got to go get a job. So I can buy the food. So I can get the strength. So I can go to work. So I can get the paycheck. So I can buy the food. So I can get the strength. So I can go to work. Etc., etc., etc. That's where we live, folks. But that's not who we are. We do have responsibilities here, and they need to be taken care of, for sure. But we also have responsibilities to the Lord our God. We have spiritual responsibilities that supersede any other responsibilities that we may or may not have. Those need to be taken care of first, and those are the things that we need to stay focused on. 
girding up the loins of my mind means that I stay focused on Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in my life. I got to stay focused, folks, because it's so easy for me to get unfocused. It's so easy for me to get distracted. First thing blows up in, in family, in the house, at work. And then all of our attention is right there, isn't it? And then another thing blows up. And we're, we're putting out fires. That's not a good way to live. I don't know if you've tried that for any length of time. But putting out fires all day, every day, that's, that's stressful. You'll work yourself into an early grave. You'll go bald early. Men, (laughs) stay focused on the big picture, folks. Stay focused on those things that really matter. You won't have to worry about so many fires. Stay focused on God. What does God want you to do? Where is God leading you? Stay focused on that. Stay focused on eternal things. Stay focused on God's Word. Because when we stay focused on the temporal, folks, it's very easy to get focused on the storm. It's it's easy to get focused on present circumstances and situations. And it gets really big. And it gets really huge really fast. God, again, when I see Him high and lifted up, that situation isn't, that doesn't seem as scary anymore. It doesn't seem as even as important as it used to. It's still going on. I, I can't just simply say it's not. It's still there. But it's put in proper perspective now. God's on the throne, and He takes care of it. I need to gird up the loins of my mind. I need to stay focused, and I need to keep my eyes fixed on things eternal, not on this present world. It's dangerous to attempt to change what we do without changing the way we think. True holiness begins with a changed mindset rather than with modified behavior. Romans 12, 1 and 2 states this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed how? By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our minds need to be transformed. The way we think needs to be changed. It needs to be different. When we come to the Lord, folks, and we we become a new creature, that means the way we think changes as well. The way I used to think is way different than the way I think today. The way I see things is way different than the way I used to see things. Why? Not because I'm older. Because God transformed me. Maybe a little bit because I'm older too. Hopefully a little wiser. But my nature is different now. My thought process is different. Everything is different. My worldview has changed. It's different than it was. Proverbs 3 and 3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. 
Write them upon the table of thine heart. It's something that resides here. It's something that resides here. 2 Corinthians 3.3 says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. We are become living epistles, known and read of all men, the Bible says. True holiness, again, as we discussed, begins on the inside with a transformed nature, not with a bunch of rules and regulations. Now, you can legislate morality. You can, in fact, that statement is a complete oxymoron. You can't legislate morality. Every law we have is a moral statement. It is. It's something you ought to do or ought not do. That's a moral statement. We legislate morality all the time. Every law is a legislation of morality. But God's desire is that we self-regulate. We self-govern based on what he has placed in here. Not with an external set of rules and regulations. That, of course, leads to legalism. And that's generally frowned on. Rightly so. The letter of the law killeth. The Spirit giveth life. True holiness begins on the inside with a transformed nature, not with rules and regulations. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Adopting this mindset also means that we need to reject every other mindset. The opportunity cost. If I make one choice, I can't make any other choice. If I decide to buy the Porsche, I can't buy the Lamborghini. Unless you're really rich. I couldn't buy either one. Typically, if I'm going to buy one car, I can't buy any of the other cars. Adopting this mindset means rejecting another. That other is what Peter called our former lusts or our former lifestyles outside of Christ. If I'm going to be a child of obedience, I can no longer be a child of wrath. Paul provided a lengthy condemning description of this worldly lifestyle in Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and read that if you need to. Read it again. And he later exhorts us in Romans chapter 12 to be not conformed to this world. Both Peter and Paul understood we tend toward conformity to a particular pattern of actions. Actions controlled, like children, not by fixing our eyes on our eternal future, but on our immediate desires. Children are notorious for this. I'll take $1 now versus $10 tomorrow. Adults hopefully realize, if I could just wait it out, I make ten times the bank. Delayed gratification is what it's called. Those who are more emotionally mature, even children who are more emotionally mature, they'll take the latter choice because it's better. 
I can save today, I can enjoy myself tomorrow. Versus, I want to spend today. I want to enjoy today. And now tomorrow suffers. When we fix our eyes on our immediate desires and seek to fulfill them, at best, folks, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. At worst, you're going to be led away from God. You're going to fall into the the temptation of the enemy. Seek to fulfill God's desires, God's pleasures. Keep your eyes fixed on our eternal future. Peter expects his hearers to make a full break here with their former identities. Peter, even in in chapter 1, verse 3, uses rebirth language to describe the completeness of our transformation. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. Begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This transformation, this new identity, is not a product of our own design or or our own efforts. It's a product of divine. uh, It's a product of the divine. God does that. God transforms us. He makes us a new creature. And if God has made us new creatures in Him, how is it that some of us can still struggle to let go of some of those things we used to do? If God has transformed me, if that person is completely dead, buried, gone, and I am a new creature now, how is it that Christians can still struggle with things? Well, I believe, I could be way off base here, this is just me talking, I believe that it's because deep down in our heart of hearts, there are some things we don't want to be delivered from. Meaning we want to live for God and we want to keep those favorite sins, those secret sins, those things we enjoyed. I can always repent. God will forgive me. I'll go back and do it again. God will forgive me. I know God's merciful, folks. But if I can just touch on that for a moment. Don't frustrate the grace of God. Please please don't do that. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. We are not to hold anything back from God, especially not that, that one thing that I used to love doing. It doesn't please God but it pleases me. And I'm doing everything else. Folks, making a choice for God in every area but, every area except, is not a choice for God at all. God will have all of us or nothing at all. He will be the Lord or somebody else will be the Lord. Someone else will be the Lord. 
Joshua 22 and 5 says, But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love, love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul. Isn't he worthy of that? To cleave unto him. To seek him with all your heart. If we do that, he promises that we'll be found of him. Jesus confirms this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. You get that right, folks. You're doing good. If you get that right, if you truly get that right, you're not going to struggle with anything. That's going to be, that's going to be cast aside. That's going to be dropped off. Oh, but it's really hard. It's, it's really difficult. Biblically speaking, I can relate, but biblically speaking, I can't understand why. There's no biblical basis for it to be a struggle. I don't, I don't see how that's possible. If we're cleaving unto, unto the Lord, God will deliver us. God will set us free. That's his promise. Will he or won't he? Matthew 6.24 says, No man can serve two masters. And that is exactly what we're trying to do here. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Likewise, he cannot serve God and your own desires. He cannot serve God and your own lusts. Whatever that might be. Sexual sins always come to mind, but it could be anything else. It could be anything else. If we'll love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, these things will not be a problem for us. God will give you victory over these things. It could be unforgiveness. It could be bitterness. It could be anything. But whatever it might be, God desires to set you free. Don't you want to be free, completely and absolutely free of those things that used to bind you, of those things that used to hinder you? I want to be free. I want to be free. So instead of pagans controlled by raging lusts, as in the case of Peter's day, Peter's hearers were now children of obedience. Throughout Scripture, obedience to divine commands is the essence of humanity's proper relationship to God. I find that summed up no more succinctly and no more perfectly than in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. There it is. Brief, to the point. I love it. Easy to memorize. 
Obedience is an expression of both loyalty and faith, and it's the only way for us to access divine blessing and protection. Disobedience, on the other hand, provides for us the exact opposite. God will remove his protection from us. He will remove his blessing from us. However, obedience alone does not offer us the entire picture of what it means to be in a relationship with God because we are, first of all, children of obedience. Obedience isn't a simple matter of obligation or the secret to a long and prosperous life. It's kind of like paying tithes. I know that there are people that pay tithes just so that their finances will be blessed. No other reason than that. Fair enough, I suppose. I guess. But there's a much higher reason to pay my tithes. And that's because it pleases my God. When I submit myself in humble obedience to His Word, it pleases Him. He promises a blessing. Fantastic. But folks, here's the key. Would you do it if he didn't? Would you obey God with your tithes and your offerings? It says both. If he didn't promise a blessing. That will reveal to us where we're at, won't it? We must be obedient to the Lord, not for the loaves and the fishes. We don't serve God because of the Pentecostal goosebumps and the blessings that he provides. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ because he saved me. He delivered me from a life. God only knows where I'd be today. I don't have the first clue. I don't want to know where I'd be today. I'm very thankful for where I am today. And it's all because of God. It's all because of Jesus and what he's done for me. Period. I'm here despite myself, I think. The Lord has been so good to us. Can't we show our appreciation with our humble obedience? Can't I show my faith and trust in God by obeying what he tells me to do? Well, what's going to happen if I do that, God? Well, what are you going to do for me in return, God? God forbid. God forbid I ever adopt that kind of attitude in the face of my Savior. If I trust him, I already know that what he tells me to do is the right thing. It's the best thing for me. love him because he first loved me and I want to do everything I can to serve him and to please him I want him to, to, to have pleasure in me I want him to be glorified in me amen and I can't do that if I'm after the loaves and the fishes because as soon as the loaves and the fishes run out so does my loyalty I've become a spiritual mercenary at that point. 
I'm serving in God's army as long as the pay is right. As soon as the pay stops, I'm out of here. God forbid, folks. I'm in this to the end. Obedience is the loving response of grateful children to a loving father. Psalm 103.13 says, Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. We are to make a complete break with our old lives. Not necessarily our old friends and loved ones, but maybe. But when we do that, God opens up a place for us in the warmth and safety of his family. Our new identities carries carry uh, our new identity carries with it promises of loving care, freedom from past shame and guilt, and a sense of belonging and renewed purpose. Who doesn't want that? We're called to reflect God's holiness. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. At first glance, God calls us to be holy. God's call to us to be holy begins with what we ought not do. But that's not true. A call to holiness is more about what we ought to do than what we ought not do. Instead of conforming to the former lusts, we are called to be holy in all manner of conversation. In other words, in every aspect of our lives. If you look at Leviticus 19 and 2, and he quotes this, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He ties what he's saying here to the book of Leviticus, to the Old Testament. And in the book of Leviticus, if you look at chapters 17 through 26, Those chapters have been dubbed the Holiness Code. I'd never heard that before. But now I have and you have too. These teachings were at the central heart of the Mosaic Law. And we see in Matthew 5.17 that Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. So the connection Peter draws here is to reaffirm the church's continuity with God's intended purposes for Old Testament Israel. God desired his Old Testament children to be holy. He desires his New Testament children to be holy as well. Amen. And if you look at those chapters, you see that there are all kinds of things mentioned. Right worship, good neighborly relations, care for the needy, prompt payment of wages. Every aspect of life is mentioned, indicating to us That holiness is reflected in every area of our lives, not just the way I dress. That too, but it's a whole lot more than just that. Every aspect of my life ought to indicate, ought to demonstrate to others God's holiness. God's holiness reflected in me is the family resemblance, if you will. Amen. We are to be holy as he is holy. In conclusion, the parallel logic of Peter's teaching in 1 Peter 1 is convincing and compelling. God, who has abundant mercy, 
has expressed his character in the glorious work of our redemption with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, whereby we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. The same living word that generated life in Genesis 1 now spiritually regenerates fallen humanity. By it we are delivered from the corrupted and corruptible system of this world into the glorious reality of eternal, incorruptible hope. Furthermore, and more important, the very character of this holy, gracious God has been imparted to us in that wondrous redemption. Just as God expressed his character in the concrete action of the cross, we must express the reality of that inner character in concrete actions of fervent, loving care to our brothers and sisters. Near the end of his epistle, Peter reiterated this theme. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are to love as we have been loved, not from our own resources, but from God's magnificent supply in Christ Jesus. Amen. How we demonstrate holiness one to another is our love one for another. And Peter exhorts us to demonstrate that love fervently. Amen. Not weak-willed, not wishy-washy, fervently, passionately. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We are so thankful that your character, your holiness, is imparted unto us. Thank you, Lord God, that in this area we can serve you. In this area we can demonstrate you that we be holy as you are holy. Thank you, Jesus, for the word that we've received. Continue to bless your people uh, during our next service. Be with us. Minister to every need. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.